Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Jesus, we are in a city that is known for darkness. And thank you for reminding us that you make the darkness tremble. God, we all have fears, and I sense that we even may have some fears in the room this morning on what it means to follow you and follow you faithfully. God, that there's some fears and anxieties on what it would actually look like to live out the Great Commission, what it would look like to live out your Sermon on the Mount and live in a countercultural way in a countercultural city. And so, God, we pray, just as we sang, that you silence those fears and that we can give those over to you. It's in your name, by your power, we pray. And it's in your authority, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to everyone. Uh, For those of you online, my name is Matt, and we're glad that you've joined us. I do apologize if you're with the live stream. I've heard there's some uh, spottiness on the sound. That's because the Wi-Fi in this building that we're in is not very strong. So I don't even know if you're hearing this or if my voice is crackling up, but hopefully we'll get there very soon. So thank you for being patient. Uh, with us. Um, I'm glad you're with us this weekend, regardless if you're online or in person. Uh, It's always good that we can gather together. Uh, Kids are officially out of school, and so that means summer is here, regardless what it feels like outside. It kind of felt like spring or fall a little bit yesterday. Today's a little bit warmer, but still raining. And so uh, for those of you who are new to Portland, because we know we have people who are visiting and interns this summer, I've always heard that July 4th is when you can be pretty guaranteed that you won't get rain after that time. And so we're not quite there, but we're pretty, pretty close. And although it's really dry and we kind of need the rain anyway. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at a topic and theme that is not very popular amongst our generation. What we're going to be looking at is power and authority. This is actually, I feel like, a a topic that we kind of avoid in our generation. And I think actually many people today are skeptical of this, and many people avoid this topic with good reason. I think one of the largest sexual abuse scandals in sports history with the USA Gymnastics team. We've got, um, for two decades, young female athletes were sexually assaulted and molested by gym owners, by coaches, by staff, against different gymnastic programs across the country. It wasn't even isolated into one. It was all over the country this was happening. Particularly, longtime USA Gymnastics coach Larry Nasser has been named in hundreds of lawsuits filed by athletes who said that he engaged in sexual abuse of them for at least 14 years. Over a decade that this doctor was getting away with this, under the pretense of providing medical treatment to young girls and young athletes. And since the scandal first broke, over 265 women have accused him of sexually assaulting them. And so I I give that example as an extreme example that power oftentimes corrupts. You know, these, these girls, these young girls were trusting this doctor to do what was right for them and give them the right medical treatment as they're training and one of their life goals of being a, a USA gymnast. And so power seems to corrupt. It seems the news is filled daily with big, and small examples of the misuse of power, right? Just turn on your phone and scroll social media, Twitter or Facebook, or go to CNN or Fox News or whatever it is that you tune into. We see holiday directors are sexually exploiting actresses. We'll see teachers sexually molesting children. We see police officers murdering someone. We see pastors not having the high character they write about in books. And examples go on and on and on. And so for this reason... I can understand on one hand why our generation pushes back so strongly on power and authority 
because we've seen the misuse of it. We've seen the abuse of it. And we kind of said, uh-uh, we've seen enough and we don't want to believe it anymore. And that these stories are so frequent, they're so constant that I think we could easily grow numb to even the stories themselves. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, well, there's another one and there's another one and there's another one. I think the ones that pain me the most are within the church. And we'll go, oh, well, there's, there's another author, another pastor, another one that I kind of looked up to and I read their blogs and I read their, their books and man, and, and then I just saw this kind of all crumble. And so it's no wonder that we have this distrust and the misuse of power and authority. But this morning, we're actually going to look at power and authority. And we're going to look at how Jesus describes it because this is how the Sermon on the Mount finishes. This is how the Sermon on the Mount concludes after Jesus has finished his teaching. So we're going to look at the final two sermons, or two sermons, two verses this morning. You guys are like, we've had 28 sermons in this series. We don't need two more. We're going to look at the final two verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verses 28 and 29. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Now John Stott, who I've probably used his commentary more than any others when preparing these sermons, he points out that many people, including inherits of other religions, and of no religion at all, they tell us they're actually prepared to accept the Sermon on the Mount as it contains self-evident truth. They know that includes such sayings as, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Love your enemies. No one can serve two masters. Judge not that you be not judged. Whatever you wish that men would do, do so to them. And so people take those sayings and they kind of grab onto those sayings from this Sermon on the Mount, from what we call this Kingdom Manifesto, and they say, that sounds really, really good. We can, we can accept that Jesus. And so they say that Jesus of Nazareth, they look at him as this moral t- teacher. And they here's his simplest and most purest form. Here's Jesus at his best, they will say. And here's the core of his message before it became encrusted with the worthless additions of his interpreters. And that this is Jesus in his most pure form. They'll say, here's the original Jesus with his plain ethics of what he's offering to the world. There's no dogmas. There's, it's an unsophisticated prophet of righteousness claiming to be no more than a human teacher, and they're telling us to do good and to love one another. And that people, people see this teaching, and they love this teaching. This is a good teaching. Even um, a Hindu professor once said this. So this is a Hindu. Not only a Hindu, a Hindu professor. He said, the Jesus of dogma I do not understand, but the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross I love and I am drawn to. Similarly, a Muslim Sufi teacher said this. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, he said he could not keep back the tears. So we're talking about a Muslim and a Hindu who are saying these things about the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. But, as John Stott points out in his commentary, that the explanation of the Sermon on the Mount, it's, this is mistaken. You can't separate Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount from the Jesus of the rest of the Bible. First, in its view of the teacher, and secondly, in its presentation of his teachings. When we look more closely at both, something very different emerges. And so we previously, over the last seven months, we've looked at the distinctive of his teachings. We've kind of seen a sketch of the Christian counterculture that Jesus offers us and his call to this radical discipleship. And it now remains for us this morning to ask the question about what is so unique about this teacher himself. And what we shall find is it's impossible to drive a wedge or to separate the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount from the Jesus of the rest of the New Testament. Instead, the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the same supernatural, dogmatic, divine Jesus who's to be found everywhere else in the New Testament. And so the main question that Solomon forces upon us this morning is this. What do you make of his teaching that we've looked at for all these months? And I know some of you only heard a few of these sermons, but you're welcome to go back. It is on our podcast. <laughs> and then, uh, so you ask, what do you make of this teaching? And then who on earth is this teacher? Right, we should ask that question. 
And so the main point of our final sermon in our series today is that. Who is this teacher and by what authority is he teaching? And so as we finished up his teaching last week, here's how Matthew records for us the response of his listeners. And so Jesus finished up his teaching, and now we're just kind of seeing the response. So Matthew's just kind of jotting down what he's observing of the crowd. Verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so here's Jesus. He's finished teaching what we've looked at for seven months. Now, once again, it took Jesus probably 20 minutes to preach this entire sermon. It took me seven months. It's because I'm not Jesus. And that was just to show you that I'm not Jesus, in case there was any mistakes. And our response today should be the same as that of the original audience. That at the end of a seven-month journey, we should be in awe of the authority. We should be astonished at the teachings of Jesus, even the ones that we're not comfortable with, even the ones that we don't agree with. That, in some ways, that should be what's shocking to us. Man, if we were to actually live this way, this is a very countercultural way to what our culture wants us to live, to what our, our country wants us to live, what our world wants us to live, and while we recognize the authority that Jesus teaches with. Now, what it doesn't say, I think this is key, it doesn't say that all the crowd bowed down and worshiped Jesus. So even though they were astonished and they recognized his authority, it doesn't say they all got on their knees and said, you know, King Jesus, we want to follow you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they took up their cross and followed him, but it does say that they were astonished by his teaching and they recognized as he was one who taught with authority. Now, it's interesting because the crowds of the day, they would have been used to hearing their teachers of their culture, the ones who had authority. But the difference is the source of the authority. They spoke by the authority of others, right? So the scribes of their day would speak of the authorities of others and point to the teachers of old. Jesus spoke with his own authority. You know, I think about even myself this morning, like who do I come in? I don't come in as Matt's authority. I have no authority. I come in with Jesus' authority. I come in with the Bible's authority. And so just like the, the authority of their day, I've got to point back to somebody else and I'm pointing up to Jesus, but Jesus came with his own authority. That he teaches by this. Now, some of us functionally like to operate as Jesus today because we have a lot of opinions, right? <laughs> I think about bloggers. And a lot of times bloggers are reading like, that's a good blog, but that was just kind of their own thoughts and opinions. Why are they making money doing this? They're doing this by their own authority. But we're all guilty of that, right? We kind of come in and, well, I think this, and I think that, and I think this. And Jesus came and said, no, I'm coming with my own authority. And his authority is one that we must all recognize. Which should not make it not surprising that the, mar- the crowds marveled at this. They were astounded at the teachings of Jesus. Because for them, the difference was one of authority. So the scribes and Pharisees, they were religious authorities. They were recognized as that in the culture, but their right to speak was always based on pointing back to something else. Strikingly, Jesus quotes scripture in his sermon only to reinterpret it. Isn't that cool? Like Jesus comes in and and the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees of the day thought this is what it means. And Jesus would come and say, actually, it means this. And Jesus would get accused of things, right? But Jesus would come in and he would reinterpret scripture. Jesus never cites human authorities or tradition. And he speaks with directness and confidence that he himself is bringing God's message for a new era in human history. So such preaching reflects either the height of presumption or heresy, right? Jesus comes in like, who are you to come in this way? Like you're either coming in and you're the real deal and you actually have this authority or you are like the most heretical individual who ever walked the face of the earth. Once again, who is this teacher? Is he the true spokesman for God? Is he God himself? Or is he something else? What was it about this message? What was it about these words that was so different from what the crowds of the day had already heard in the synagogue? 
What made it so appealing? What made it different than what they were already learning? What caused them to actually be amazed? I mean, let's just think for a minute. Like, how often is it that you're actually amazed? Right? We kind of use that phrase a lot today. Like, I'll have salt and straw ice cream. I'll be like, that was amazing. That was an amazing flavor. I'll eat um, gravy's Monte Cristo sandwich. So if you guys haven't been to gravy with me, you got to go. Like, it is, it's, it is amazing. But it's just, you know, food that we're talking about. How often is it you're actually amazed by something? That you're actually left speechless by something? Or something, you ever been to a place where, like, you almost were taken back? Like, you had to sit down? Whether it was good news or bad news? And then I, I learned of a pastor who took his own life about a year ago. And I remember, I never knew him personally, but I kind of followed him from afar. And I remember just sitting down and being like, whoa, I'm just, I was kind of taken back in all of like what had happened. But I don't think it was very often, but it says that the crowds were amazed, that they were astonished by the teachings of Jesus. And Matthew tells us it was because when he, Jesus taught, he was teaching as one who actually had authority, not as one who came in and said, oh, I've got, I've got the authority. You know, not as one who had self-proclaimed that they had authority, but as one who actually had authority. But being struck and wowed by somebody is different or, or is not enough. We looked at the foundation last week. Jesus talked about where it is we build our life upon. That, that's important. We looked at the foundation that shapes our priorities and, and our life. How does it we're going to live? We looked at the foundation that determines things, how we live out our lives daily and how it is that we actually live out all of these messages that Jesus has given us over this series. Now, typically when we think about power, and authority, at least once again, our generation, we think about the abuse of power, right? And so as soon as I came in, and as soon as you probably heard that we're talking about power and authority, you may have thought of that. You may have thought of, uh uh-oh, here we go. Matt's going to come in and say, I've got the power and authority. I'm the pastor, right? That's not what this message is about. But you hear that, and you think, oh, I remember, even if it's, once again, it could be a church example, and you think, man, I remember the abuse of this, or I remember hearing that story about the, the gymnastics coach, or I remember reading something just this weekend. So that's what we typically think about, But if you reflect over the last seven months and all of these messages and what Jesus is actually portraying here in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does throughout the whole thing, throughout these three chapters, he points to the cruciality of handling the right of power throughout. And so Jesus comes in, he's actually questioning the the power and authority structures of the day throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. And that's what Jesus is so good at doing. Jesus comes and he flips things upside down, right? He flips them on their head, which is why I want us to ask two questions regarding Jesus and his relationship with power. The first question I want us to ask is what is Jesus' unique challenge to those with power? How does Jesus come in and challenge those who have power at this time when he was actually delivering this? And what we see is there's a significant and overarching theme to Jesus, to those in power, to stop exploiting the weak and to stop exploiting the people under their power and authority. And just as Jesus says, stop doing that. Don't do it this way. And we see that Jesus is aligned with the heart of God that, that power is to be used in a right way. We see, I'm, I'm just going to kind of hit on a few of these throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus doing? He's coming in, he's rebuking the religious and political leaders of the day. Later in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so we see that Jesus comes in, and Jesus calls out what they're saying, and Jesus calls out what they're doing by naming it, right? Jesus isn't afraid to do that. Jesus isn't afraid to call somebody's bluff. You know, sometimes we kind of shy away, and we'll, we'll, that's when gossip can kind of come in, because we'll, we'll start talking about somebody else and say, man, they think this. And they, Jesus came in and just, I'm going to name it. I'm going to call it out. Matthew 6, 5, just a few verses later, says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners 
that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites. He said, you've already received your reward. Right? He's got no problem calling that out and telling somebody that you are a hypocrite. And then we see in, uh, a little bit later down in Matthew 6, 16, it says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. So once again, Jesus calling them out for their ongoing hypocrisy. He's saying, you know, it'd be like you guys walking in this morning. Doesn't mean I shouldn't ever do this. But it'd be like you all walking in this morning. I get here early. I'm like down on my knees praying. They're like, man, Matt's really spiritual this morning. And I'm going around. I'm like, man, I'm so hungry. I'm just fasting this weekend, you know, trying to get closer to Jesus. And Jesus is like, Matt, you've already got your reward, right? You're doing it to be seen by others, seen super spiritual by others. And so Jesus calls this out. And those with authority are the ones often doing this. The Pharisees of the day, they were doing this. And so Jesus is calling it out. And then we see just recently, a couple weeks ago, Matthew 7, 15. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus warns us about false prophets who come as sheep, but they're actually wolves. And that, that a lot of us, if they walked in this morning, we'd be mistaken. Once again, they're not gonna have a sign telling us this. And we'd look at them and go, okay, man, look at this leader, look at this individual, but secretly, inwardly, they're actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so what we see is Jesus, his uniqueness with a, with a relationship with power, is he questions it. And he calls out the authority and power structures that existed in that place and time. Which makes it interesting that the crowds concluded with being astonished and recognizing Jesus as one who had power and authority. It's like they recognized what he was actually doing. Now I can imagine the leaders of the day, those with power and authority, were probably a little bit upset. You know, you've ever been sitting in a, in a, in a let's just say a Sunday gathering and during a sermon, you kind of get convicted. You're kind of like, oh no, is that talking about me? You know, we've, we've all been there. We, we, we all do that. A lot of times that's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit because it's got nothing to do with, with me. I've had people in the past, nobody's currently in this room say, man, you were picking on me in that sermon. I'm like, I had, didn't have you in mind at all. You might want to take that up with God. But I can imagine as Jesus teaching, these leaders are feeling that way. They're like, man, Jesus is picking on me. Like I had that conversation with him or he saw me over here doing this. And now he's, he's called, like, who is he? call me out, and the crowds are going, he is one who has authority to do this. And so the crowds recognize this because the way that he is leading and his use of power is radically different from that, what they had experienced and seen up to this point. They've never seen someone with power and authority who's used it in this way, right? Of all people, who could come in and, and just easily misuse or abuse, right? Jesus would know how to do it, but they're like, man, he's operating completely opposite of one who has power and authority. And Jesus shows us throughout the gospels time and time again that he came to challenge the rulers of the day, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Roman, or whether they were Satan himself, that Jesus came to challenge kind of the status quo. Jesus came to challenge those who had been given some kind of level of power and authority. And then Jesus directly and firmly confronted all systems. He doesn't care what the cultural system is. He doesn't care what the cultural norm is. He comes and confronts all systems and he shows them that Jesus, that he himself, he came to establish a new rule, a new reign, a new use of power and a new use of leadership. And so we've looked briefly at how Jesus came in and uniquely challenged the power of his day. Now I want us to ask a second question. How then did Jesus uniquely use his power? So we see how he came in and questioned the power structures that were existed then how did Jesus come in differently? How did Jesus uniquely use his power? Now, to be clear, Jesus is not against leadership or power. Jesus is not advocating for a total dismissal of power and authority. And Jesus never says that leadership and power in and of themselves are bad. He doesn't say that. 
Just look at the way that the scriptures describe the church. It is not a group of people that just admire and care for one another, but it has systems. The church has structures. The church has leaders, and there's actually certain qualifications for those leaders. That's why we don't just put anyone in church leadership. You don't just get to go and, and put your name on a list, and then you just get thrown into some kind of church leadership role. And the reason is that Jesus actually left. There's systems here, and there's, there's qualifications here. You know, I think oftentimes we see kind of a, uh, a failure or a falling or some misuse of power and authority. I think a lot of times we've got to look at it and go, I don't know that person should have ever been in authority in the first place. They got put there because maybe they were a charismatic leader or maybe they had certain gifts and certain qualities. And a lot of those people were the ones that we kind of, we always sit at their feet and just kind of, we are almost in awe. But a lot of times you go, okay, but are they known for these things? Do they actually meet the qualifications that are for a leader? And ultimately, do they love God and do they love others? You know, I think a lot of people see pride in a leader. We go, okay, why is that person in leadership if that's what they are exhibiting? And so millennials, my fellow millennials and Gen Z, the idea is not a total dismissiveness of leadership but rather leadership rightly yielded in alignment with the will of Jesus. In other words, Jesus comes in, he shows us how to use power. Jesus comes in, he shows us the ultimate example of what it means to be a servant leader. I can remember working at Starbucks a number of years ago. Thank God that season of my life is over. I love coffee and coffee culture, but I hate working at Starbucks. And I remember working with this individual. And I was a shift leader, which meant you weren't the, like the head manager, but when you were on duty and the manager wasn't there, you basically were the manager. And there was another shift leader, and we'd have to work occasionally together. And everybody hated working with this leader. And the reason is he got the power, and he was like, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. And so he would sit back in the back, and just hang out on his phone, drink coffee, and make everyone else do everything. And so this isn't say, look at me, but I tried to do the opposite approach and everyone enjoyed working with me. As I said, no, like servant leadership is a thing. And so if I'm gonna ask you to mop a floor, then I'm also gonna mop a floor. Uh, for that matter, right now we have uh, Elena filling in as our summer worship leader. We're thankful for her, but I've met with a couple people interested in leading worship for us long-term. And I say, look, I'm not looking for someone who's just gonna get up in front of everybody and lead music, and that's kind of your only role. If there's a toilet that needs to be cleaned downstairs, then I want you to be willing to clean the toilet even five minutes before you get up and lead us in a worship song because you haven't arrived and you're not above anyone else when there are things that need to get done. But the ultimate example of servant leadership is Jesus. Listen how Philippians 2 describes Jesus' leadership in verses five through eight. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see Jesus, he came in the form of God. Why? Because he is God. Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus was God, and he, he could have just easily come out with his godness, but instead, he did not count as the thing to be grasped. And Jesus emptied himself of his godness by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus took on the form of us. So all the, all the weakness that you feel and all the struggles that you feel, Jesus came and took on our form. And Jesus, then being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, is there a better picture of servant leadership? Is there a better picture of one who's in power and authority who could have done something differently who decides to come in and willingly humble himself and takes on this form? Like, this is the picture of servant leadership. This is the true picture of power and authority, which is very opposite of what we think of in our culture, right? Sometimes we want to come in and rule with an iron fist and, and rule this way and do things this way. Like, yes, there is a reason we have leaders in our lives and that, that sometimes, you know, you have to take a firm action, but what does it look like to exemplify what Jesus did. 
and, and with his humble leadership, with his servant leadership. Now, this should invoke a response in us of worship at the leadership of Jesus. This should cause us to, to pause. This should cause us to be in awe because the reality is we rarely see this. We rarely see this form of leadership as an example in our culture, in our country, in our world. It's, it's very, very rare. And so if you see this and imagine being the first audience sitting at Jesus' feet, like wouldn't you be in awe? Wouldn't you be in wonder? I mean, you could be sitting there thinking, man, about this bad experience you have maybe with your parents who are authority in your life, or, or maybe a bad experience with a boss who's authority in your life, or maybe a bad experience with a teacher in your life, or, or imagine at this day, because sin has been, been here since Adam and Eve and Genesis 3 ate the, the apple and, and humankind ever since has been broken. So like, this is a horrible story of this gymnastics uh, US team for 14 years, but you gotta imagine people are sitting there who had also experienced abuse, who'd been molested. And they're sitting there and they're going, I can just imagine the tears coming down their face and they're just streaming as they're going, this is different than what I've experienced in my life. There's a reason that you would be weak. There's a reason you would question it, right? You've got this trauma and these things hanging over your head and all of a sudden you see one who comes in and it clicks. There's this perfect picture of what leadership and power and authority should actually look like. Now, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came and delivered these words to us. Since Jesus walked up that mountain to the Sea of Galilee and delivered the most best and most impactful sermon ever preached. And he did it with authority like nobody else. So can you imagine just what it would have been like sitting there and just basking in this teaching? And these words spoken by Jesus over the course of these three chapters, they're as applicable today as they were to his original audience. I think for me, each week I was challenged by something as I was studying and even as I was delivering. And sometimes I go back and listen and, and, and poke fun of my own voice on a recording, but I would listen to these things and go, man, this is challenging stuff. But if we actually live this out, imagine just sojourn living this out. Imagine the church of Portland as we kind of come in unity together. If we lived out the Sermon on the Mount, it would radically shape the way that our city looks. It would radically shape the way that our metro looks and our state and even our nation if we were actually living out the Sermon on the Mount. It would force us to look deep within ourselves, not to ourselves for the strength, deep within ourselves to then look upward to heaven, to Jesus, to decide and determine what path will we take? What door will be open? What foundation is it which I will build my life upon? And to answer this question, who is this Jesus who teaches with such authority? We see that Jesus uses this masterpiece. And that's really what it is. This is a masterpiece. Like for me, I challenge myself. I want to go back and read through this at least once a year. Just slowly read through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's true. I know I joked about it because we've been in it seven months. I might as well just go ahead and start it all over again. But there may be a point in the not too distant future. We might, you know, Lord willing, we, we rebuild and we grow and new people have never heard any of these sermons. So I'll kind of retool them and we'll go through it again. And hopefully they'll get even, even better. But this masterpiece, it makes us choose not between being good or bad. I think we can mistake, okay, we got to choose. Are we going to be good? Are we going to be bad? Is this like yin or yang? Or like, what is this? But rather what Tim Keller says between both being religious or being a Christian. So this is really the difference Jesus is showing us. You can be religious and you can have all the right sayings and wear all the right clothes and do all the right things that people go, oh man, look at this person. That's just religion. So are you gonna be religious? Or are you gonna be actually a, being a Christian as Tim Keller says? Are you gonna be a Jesus follower? Are you gonna practice the ways of Jesus? And for us, as we submit to the leadership and authority of Jesus ultimately, so people say, who's the head of Sojourn Church? The head of Sojourn Church is Jesus. Whether I'm here or whether somebody else is standing here, Jesus will always be that power and authority in the head of this church. And Jesus starts to change us inwardly when we become the poor in spirit, when we mourn at our sin and the sin of the world, when we become meek, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
when we are merciful and pure in heart, when we are peacemakers, when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. And as Jesus tells us, to these people being the kingdom, belong the kingdom of heaven, to those who become this way. And so that's what we're doing. We want to see the kingdom of heaven here in Portland as it is in heaven. We want to help the culture around us, the people around us, those relationships in our lives, answer who is Jesus? And so may the words of Jesus from this greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus himself penetrate our hearts, penetrate our lives as we seek to live in obedience to our Lord and Savior as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now and forever. We don't have to wait until we get there. Jesus says, you can live this out now. It's gonna be a poor reflection of it and we're gonna fail time and time again. That's why I always like to say, I'm failing forward. We will fail forward as a church. We'll fail forward and living out what Jesus left to us, but we get to start now. It's like, this is the practice, right? You do a rehearsal, you always kind of mess up in rehearsal a little bit. So this is the practice that we get to do that now, but then we get to live it forever in eternity with Jesus. And so as we finish this morning, as we wrap up this sermon and put a bow on it and put it on the shelf, I wanna leave you with two questions to ask yourself. And you can ask yourself this as you reflect, as we're led in a time of response. First question is, where do I have power and influence? Now, you might think of yourself and think, I don't have any power, I don't have any influence, but we all do to a degree, whether you're a parent, whether you are a teacher, wherever it is you work, you may not be the owner or the manager, but there's probably somebody underneath you with children in your lives. So where is it you have power and authority and influence in your daily life? And then second question is, how am I using that power and influence? How am I using that authority to reject the exploitation of others, to model servant leadership, to pursue the blessing and flourishing of others in a way that Jesus did? So how is it you, one is where do you have it and how it is that you are using it? So I'm gonna pray for us. Elena's gonna come back up. She's gonna lead us out in one more song. And just take time to reflect on those questions. Take time to, to reflect on your answers. And you might realize, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you might realize, man, there's areas that maybe I've been misusing some of my power. Maybe I have been abusing some of my power. I don't know. That's between you and God, but we all have power. We all have authority. And we want it to model and look like Jesus ultimately. And we come in as a servant leaders and that we, we are humble with our leadership. So let me pray for us, and then we will respond in worship. God, we thank you this morning again that we can come to gather as your church, as your bride. I think over the last seven months, just how you have shaped and impacted my life. Guys, we've looked at this sermon, and we've looked at these teachings and how they're just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago when you first delivered them. But God, I don't know that your church broadly, that your church collectively is really living this out. And so God, the challenge of this last seven months hasn't been to pull up your bootstraps and try harder. The challenge has been to look to you as our ultimate example and how it is that we follow you and that we learn to follow you faithfully. God, I pray for those who are in this room. I pray for those who are joining us online. God, that we can keep our eyes on you. And God, to realize that you are the power, you are the authority in our lives. God, there's parts of the Sermon that, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount that's, that's probably made us uncomfortable. There's parts that we don't necessarily like. There's parts that we would have probably taken out. But God, I pray that we would be willing to submit our feelings, our wants, our needs, our desires to you and to your teaching. It's in your name, by your power we pray. Amen. 
Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.